This is the TriDot Podcast. TriDot uses your training data and genetic profile combined with predictive analytics and artificial intelligence to optimize your training, giving you better results in less time with fewer injuries. Our podcast is here to educate, inspire, and entertain. We'll talk all things triathlon with expert coaches and special guests. Join the conversation and let's improve together. Together. Welcome to the Tried Out Podcast. We have a great show on deck for you today. We have Dr. Krista Austin back in the house with us for another jam-packed nutrition episode. There are so many nutritional products marketed to us as athletes that sometimes it can be difficult to know what we need to use to help our fitness endeavors. Today, we are going to cut through the noise and talk about what our bodies need and what to look for in a product. Our key guide to the nutrition product market is our resident nutritional expert, Dr. Krista Austin. Krista is an exercise physiologist and nutritionist who consulted with the U.S. Olympic Committee and the English Institute of Sport. She has a PhD in exercise physiology and sports nutrition and a master's degree in exercise physiology, as well as being certified strength and conditioning specialist. Krista, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me again, Andrew. We're going to be covering one of the most asked about topics today, so I'm excited. Very good. I'm glad we're excited to get to it as well. Uh, Also joining us is pro triathlete coach Elizabeth James. Now, Elizabeth came to the sport from a soccer background and quickly rose through the triathlon ranks using TriDot. From a beginner to a top age grouper to a professional triathlete. She is a Kona and Boston Marathon qualifier who has coached triathletes with TriDot since 2014. Elizabeth, thanks for coming back on. Yeah, you bet. Uh, just as Dr. Austin mentioned, this is a topic that many athletes have questions about. So I'm thrilled that we have our nutrition expert to guide us in today's discussion. Well, who am I? I am your host, Andrew, the average triathlete, voice of the people and the captain of the middle of the pack. Today, we're going to get warmed up uh, before moving on to our nutritionally helpful main set. When we're done, we'll cool it all down with a nutritional question for something we call Triathlon Mythbusters. It's the part of the show where I pose a question, a commonly believed topic to our uh, resident expert, and they either confirm it as true or bust it as a myth. It's going to be a great show. Let's get to it. Time to warm up. Let's get moving. Today's warm up question takes us out of coach mode and into the spectator seat. All three of us on the podcast are not just triathlon enthusiasts, but general sports fans as well. So today's question, just as a fan, if you could get tickets to any sporting event in the world, what would you choose and why? Krista, what would you choose? The French Open. It was the Grand Slam that I always wanted to see growing up, and I had a poster of it from, you know, my coach going and watching and I've watched all these hard court matches over the years and I am dying to see an up and close uh clay court match so it's the French Open for me so is it is it the style of play uh on the red clay that you're drawn to is it just because you know for us in the states so full full disclosure for our listeners uh, I also have a tennis background Dr. Austin and I have talked about that a little bit um is it just that here in the States, we don't have a lot of red clay, and so it just looks a lot more interesting and exotic to watch on TV? Is that the draw versus maybe some of the other opens? You know, it's just it's such a different style of play because of all the footwork they have to put into it. And just, you know, being there to truly watch up close what they're having to do to get themselves into position and it's just it's so different and so I just really want to watch it up close um, at least once in my life and the hard court is fun um, but at the end of the day the footwork is just that much different on the clay. I, I think it's a uh, an outstanding pick uh, I really do because a you get to go visit a foreign country and b you get to see uh, just the best in the world um, you know in in on the red clay of uh, Paris and um, I, I just a fantastic pick. Uh, Elizabeth, what uh, what would you want to go see? I would want to go see the World Cup. Uh, my first sport love was soccer. I played soccer from kindergarten through college. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, the United States will be joint hosting the 2026 World Cup. So going to hint, hint uh, to my husband, Charles, here just to that would be epic to see in person. I'll, uh, I'll be sure to make sure Charles <laughs> listens to this episode yeah. <laughs> just so he can uh, catch that to drop that hint there <laughs> yes make sure he catches the hint uh i i i have to go um super similar to dr austin uh, i've always wanted to go see wimbledon in person um it is just the um in, in a way this i mean tennis kind of has four super bowls with the four grand slams but of the four wimbledon is perhaps the most historic um we don't really have a lot of grass uh in the states just like we don't have a lot of red clay in the states so just to see, um, you know, the greats and the best of the best. Uh, I would love to fly across the pond to uh, uh, Europe and catch Wimbledon in person. All right. I got a tennis buddy. I can tell. Yes. we. Uh, it, it's too bad they're not the same time of year. We could just fly fly across and catch them boom, boom, after after the other. But we'd have to make two trips out of it to, to see, to oh, see the two bummer. of them. Bummer. Two trips. <laughs> I, I did get to see, um, I had a work trip in a previous job, a television network I worked for. Uh, we uh, had some broadcasts live from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, and so I got to see the Melbourne tennis grounds. Um, it, it wasn't around the time of the tournament, but I did get to see where the, the Australian Open is played. So uh, I feel like I've already seen that somewhat. So uh, uh, French Open, Wimbledon, we're going to book a trip. We're going to do it. We're, we're going to record a nutrition podcast live from Paris. Hey, I'm down. On to the main set. Going in three, two, one. Our main set today is brought to you by our good friends at UCAN. Here at TriDot, we are huge believers in using UCAN to fuel our training and racing. In the crowded field of nutrition companies, what separates UCAN from the pack is the science behind their superstarch, the key ingredient in UCAN products. While most energy powders are filled with sugar or stimulants that cause a spike or crash, UCAN energy powders, powered by superstarch, deliver a steady release of complex carbs to give you stable blood sugar and provide long-lasting energy. UCAN also offers tasty and refreshing hydration mixes and energy bars for when you are on the go. When I was new to UCAN, my first purchase was their perfectly named Tri Starter Pack. It's the best way to discover what super starch-powered UCAN products are best for you. So head to their website, generationucan.com, and use the code TRIDOT to save 15% on your entire order. Dr. Austin, when athletes ask you how and what to use from all the sports nutrition products that are available on the market today, what do you tell them? You know, I tell them... Three key things. First and foremost, know the rules of using them. Okay, and one of the things I think we ought to make athletes aware of is that there are current guidelines for, especially during exercise, that they need to be cognizant of. All too frequently, one thing I do see athletes doing is using sport nutrition products that are intended for in training inappropriately. They'll snack on them, um, they'll use them afterwards when maybe they don't really need them. And so what I think is really important for athletes to know is when should they be using something. The rules of using them is pretty much related first and foremost to duration of exercise and then secondly intensity of exercise. When we're just out there hanging out kind of on the bike putting some volume in not going really too fast we actually don't need any of the carbohydrate products that you see out there on the market today because typically we're not out there for that long and it's not that intense. When we start to need carbohydrate related products during exercise is typically once we get past 60 to 75 minutes of moderate to high intensity activity. And that's when the recommendations to athletes are to in fact consume 30 to 60 grams per hour if you're going up to two hours of exercise. And if you're going past two hours of moderate to high intensity exercise to consume 90 grams or to consume up to 90 grams if they feel like they can tolerate it, mainly because of the huge energy deficit that the body uh, is going into. Secondly, I try to teach athletes to shop their options, okay? And 
what I'll be honest with you about, and this is true for just about any even elite athlete that I've worked with, is that most of them are never going to use just one line of products. And typically you benefit from incorporating a variation into your strategies rather than sticking with just one. And then thirdly, um, learning to read the label and understanding the difference between their ingredients. All too frequently athletes show up and they've never even turned it over and said, okay, what's in this energy gel? Or what's so uniquely different about this carbohydrate powder? So I think those are the key things for actually getting athletes engaged with all the sports nutrition products that are available to them today. So with the availability of all of these nutritional products, what percentage of an athlete's nutritional intake should be from those products and how much should be from whole foods? So the majority of any athlete's diet should come predominantly from whole foods. And I will tell you that before and after exercise, the only times that I don't recommend people utilizing whole foods is when one, you know, they've had a really, really high level of energy expenditure and they would probably struggle to get all those calories in if they just tried eating whole foods as they feel too full. Um, secondly, you know, we have some people that will do multiple intense sessions within the same day, and that's when we will try to tap those products to help fuel their body through those workouts and help them recover um, from the first one and get ready for the second one. But on the whole, the majority of the athlete's nutritional intake should be coming from whole foods. And just to kind of clarify for our listeners, Today, we're mainly focused on the use of nutritional products in the day-to-day training, not necessarily the specifics of a race day nutritional strategy, correct? Correct, but we will say that like the guidelines I just stated about how much should you take um, in terms of during training, that's actually intended for racing as well. So they can use those numbers as a reference point. They're very general. They're not dialed in for the individual. Um, but typically we manipulate those numbers for people's training and then dial it in during racing. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense because I know that, you know, as a coach, I certainly recommend that the athletes I'm working with are practicing their race day nutritional strategy in those training sessions as well. And so even though we're talking about, you know, day to day and the training part, there, there is a correlation to that race day approach. Yeah. As well. You know, you, you always got to practice what you're going to be doing. And very rarely do we have enough training sessions that athletes have the opportunity to truly know how their body's going to respond to products and make sure that it's consistent that way. Um, most people get into trouble if they don't do enough piloting prior to going out. I mean, even I can get into trouble with that. So let's start talking about just the, the different products that are out there and, and what we as athletes, uh, when, when we're trying things, when we're buying things, when we're looking at the store shelf or uh, that, that online um, Amazon cart, when you start to take all of the different nutrition products out there and you line them up, how do we even begin to sort through what we should be buying? So what I tell people to do is to start with the characteristics of the carbohydrates, proteins, or fats that are there. What are the innate characteristics? And to move from there. If we start taking a look at just carbohydrates on the whole, let's say, typically I ask the athletes to identify or I'll tell them, uh, the molecular weight, the osmolality, and what can they find out about carbohydrate oxidation or how quickly um, that carbohydrate can provide them with energy. So we typically start there with the innate characteristics of what it is they're presented with. So when we're looking at, um, you know, a, a label and we're trying to differentiate between those things, the osmolality, the, the uh, carbohydrate oxidation, um, how do we know kind of, how can we distinguish the, you know, between different, what, what are we looking for in distinguishing between those differences? Well, that's where we've actually got to turn the package over and go to the ingredients themselves. We need to find out, does it have cane sugar in it? Does it have super starch? Does it have, you know, something from potatoes or honey? And we need to take that, and oftentimes if you just actually Google it, believe it or not, that's what I'm recommending you do, um, you can find the molecular weight of those actual uh, products. A lot of them are very similar, though, uh, when you do ask um, the Internet. I guess you could say that's my mom always says. She goes, I'm going to go ask the Internet. 
what the molecular weight is once you get into certain types because we have ones that are high molecular weights and all of those tend to have very low osmolalities. And then we have ones with low molecular weights or lower and they tend to have higher osmolalities uh, than the high molecular weight carbohydrates. So, um, you know, like my mom says, you got to ask the internet, but typically you can also ask Dr. Austin as we go through this here, what are the molecular weights of those, of those carbohydrates? So, so talk to me about, let, let's just kind of define those terms really quickly. Um, what, what is molecular weight? So molecular weight of a carbohydrate is measured in uh, grams per mole. Okay, and typically we do that because it's giving us information about whether or not we're looking at a carbohydrate that is a monosaccharide, a disaccharide, or a polysaccharide. And essentially every carbohydrate that we ingest is going to get broken down into glucose, okay, because that's the common currency that our body's going to accept. The other is, is fructose, um, but glucose is the main one that comes in and does the job. And so when we buy a monosaccharide, what we're getting is something that says, here, here's, here's a, a molecule of glucose. If it's a disaccharide, typically they've taken two simple sugars, like glucose and fructose, and combined it to make something known as sucrose, okay? Also commonly listed today as cane sugar. Conversely, if you take some of these higher molecular weight carbohydrates, they've got a whole bunch of glucose um, chained together. And depending on the one you buy, it's, it's chained and linked up to, in a different manner with different um, breakdown rates. And it's very dependent on the enzymes used to do that. But it's of huge benefit to triathletes, by the way. So we'll, we'll have to get into those. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to dive into that in, in just a moment. Because, I, I mean, you were talking and I, was, I just had so many follow-up questions. But I, I, I want us to just kind of define some of these terms first. Um, so the next one was osmolity. Um, some people might be familiar with that term already. But... Uh, for those that aren't, um, what does the osmolality of a product mean? So it's a measure of the number of dissolved particles in a fluid. And the lower it is, the faster it's going to empty out of the stomach, Okay, which I think every triathlete can probably relate to. I mean, I know when I go out running and I'm consuming fluids and I take something that has a higher osmolality, I can feel it kind of sitting in my stomach and the fact that it's not emptying, especially when I'm running downhill. Whereas if we have something that has a really low osmolality, what I always notice is that I barely feel it. I can't even, you know, I don't know when it's come and gone from my stomach because typically it has the ability to empty so much faster than a higher osmolality beverage. So then the, the, the third one I want to ask before we start moving on is uh, what does carbohydrate oxidation mean? I actually stumbled over that word uh, in an earlier question. So, so it's, it's, it's obviously a word that, that we need to break down. Um, what, what does that mean? So essentially it's the metabolism of the carbohydrate into energy. So the question is how fast do you want that energy? Sometimes we want it to seep out really slowly. But other times, we want it to break down really fast and easily for us, just because we need the energy that quickly. So as we go through the high molecular weight carbohydrates that we're going to talk about in a bit, that's one of the things you'll hear me uh, use to help differentiate them, is that it's oftentimes um, something we can use with triathletes to manipulate the metabolic effects that they want in their body. Starting with those carbohydrates that you refer to as the high molecular weight carbohydrates, what are they, and I mean, how do you differentiate between them? So if you take a look at the high molecular weight carbohydrates that are out there on the market, there's four of them that I'm aware of. And they, they all have about the same molecular weight, uh, which is about 400 to 600,000 grams per mole. Um, those include Vitargo, Carbolin, highly branched cyclic dextrin, and a product known as Superstarch, which is made by a company uh, called the UCAN Company. And the difference between them really is how fast they break down. What I can tell from the research literature, what I've been able to gather, is that the one that breaks down the fastest and can oxidize the fastest is the Vitargo. Okay, that's something that typically people will use 
during sessions where they really want this high rate of energy delivery uh, to their body. People really like that during cycling typically because you're so much more dependent on carbohydrate. Conversely, on the very flip side of that is one called Super Starch, which is made by the UCAN company and is intended to very slowly break down and just provide you with a steady, uh, steady give of essentially glucose into the bloodstream. Now, people will use it for a variety of different reasons, but one of those might be to help fuel those more prolonged training sessions they go out for where they're not working at the most intense level um, where they have to have the fast acting ones. The other thing we've seen it used for is in someone like Tim O'Donnell, they'll use it as a base to help support their fast acting carbohydrates so they don't feel the ebbs and flows of the fast acting carbohydrates. And then sitting in between those two high molecular weight carbohydrates is one called carbolin and the highly branched cyclic dextrin. They are much more similar to the Vitargo. Um, they break down pretty readily uh, with the intent to quickly provide fuel to the body. They're just not quite as fast as the Vitargo is, or at least that's what it appears based on the research we have on them. So you would consider them more so to be sitting towards that, that end that Vitargo sits on. I'm so glad that you were able to provide some of those concrete examples. Um, what form do these high molecular weight carbohydrates come in? Most of them come, well, all four of those come in a powder. Now the thing is, you can make them into gels, or at least I know you can take the Super Starch and the Vitargo and make them into gels. I've played with them a good bit. Um, and if you're out there trying to transport your items, you might want to consider that just because you can't always get everything you need into a bottle. Um, one of the things that's tough about transporting sport nutrition is that the more you concentrate it, the sweeter it tastes. And so most athletes will try to figure out how they can take multiple forms of fuel out there, especially on the bike and the run, um, to help, you know, kind of give them some variety, but also make sure what they're taking in doesn't taste too sweet or, or get too, too thick. So what are some of the, the types of carbohydrates with a lower molecular weight, and in what forms do they come in? Um, so a lower one would be like a maltodextrin, okay? Those are about 500 to 8,000 uh, grams per mole. Um, so the osmolality in a maltodextrin is much lower than others, such as sucrose uh, or cane sugar, which is about 340 grams per mole, and versus fructose and glucose, okay? So the osmolality, or sorry, the molecular weight, um, is much lower in these as we get into the more simple uh, sugars themselves. And so I, when people are looking at different products that can maybe buy uh, that have glucose, fructose, uh, maltodextrin, cane sugar, uh, you know, what are some of the products that they might be familiar with that include those ingredients? So there's a wide variety of brands that are going to pop up right away that they're going to be familiar with. Um, so for the maltodextrin and even the blend of glucose to fructose, the real popular one that's been out there for years is, you know, the Power Bar gels or the Power Bar uh, powders. Um, you will also see companies like Goo uh, produce a maltodextrin base. They've also mixed in fructose into their product. And then you've got a variety of other companies from Infinite to Cliff and Honey Stinger and Noon that are providing glucose, fructose, or even sucrose combinations that you've got to turn it over and say, which one am I picking up and what does it have in it? At the end of the day, a large majority of them, even if it's, you know, tapioca or the honey, is going to be broken down into glucose, though. Is there a best way to use some of those lower molecular carbohydrates? You know, everyone is so different. I always say, let's understand what goes on in your, and typically I'm, you know, rubbing the, the stomach area, right, in your GI system and what you can do best. But what I've always found is that most people are going to go out there and use a highly varied mixture of products, okay, especially as they work towards optimizing fuel intakes for these longer coursed triathlons. So, you know, I had a guy the other day for his cycling workout, he was doing one that was like three and a half, four hours, something like that. 
And he, you know, started out with a couple servings of, of UCAN, and he's trying to keep his weight up, so that's one of his big goals. And then he followed it up throughout the ride with a serving per hour of Vitargo and a gel. And at the end, he finished off with, you know, some more um, fuel, but this time in the form of a bar. Um, he has some bars that he really likes. And so what you see most triathletes do is they, they learn the products that work for them and that fit their nutritional goals. Like in his case, he's trying to keep his weight up. Um, and they find the best ways to use it for them and, and to pack in the calories. So is there uh, any difference between the simple sugars, uh, or, or more importantly, is there a reason for an athlete to choose one over the other? You know, typically the athlete will choose it based on what they need it to do for them. So when they're out there, you know, they're looking for a few different things. You know, one, is the product going to oxidize well enough for the level of intensity that I, you know, am getting ready to engage in. Secondly, does it ever activate the brain's reward center? Okay. And then third, is it going to help, you know, fuel me without coming back up on me, right? Um, and does it also help do things maybe like hydrate me because we mix it into water and it serves to do that. So the question is, what do you want the product to do for you? And that's why so many people will actually engage with multiple products during a triathlon, uh, just because they need multiple things. If you take the super starch, for instance, it can't activate the brain's reward center uh, just because it's not a sugar, right? So people will say, you know what, I'll take a serving of that and I'll take a gel um, just because I need a good bit of fuel, but I don't want GI distress and I need the gel to give me the calories, but also to activate the brain's reward center and increase my rate of carbohydrate oxidation. So they try to go in and get the, the best of both worlds is what most triathletes are trying to do. Now we've talked through, I mean, quite a few nutritional products. I know that some athletes prefer actual food over those. Uh, do you have any recommendations of foods that also would provide those simple sugars? Yeah, so there's a variety of whole foods that athletes like to actually tap into from my experience. And those start out with, you know, homemade pureed uh, gels almost, I guess you could say, that they take with them, including sweet potatoes and bananas. They also might make things like rice balls. And then there are products out there today as gels that are coming from Whole Foods, from brands like Spring, Muir, Untapped Maple, and 33 Shake. Um, so we're seeing a variety of products because people have a variety of preferences while they're out there. At the end of the day, they need to go with what they want to embrace in terms of their culture for nutritional intake because we all have these transporters in our body for glucose and fructose that are highly mediated by sodium content and that's why they all tend to have sodium in them and they're going to transport that glucose and fructose through your gastrointestinal system and deliver it to you. The question is what type would you prefer to put into your body based on your own beliefs? So as, as athletes are maybe trying out some of these different products and, and different gels, different bars, uh, you know, they, after this talk, they're going to start paying attention to the labels and figuring out what, you know, the, the source of energy is, uh, what, what is actually in that product. Um, but, but tell me this, how can an athlete tell when a certain product is a good fit for them? Because we keep talking about, um, you know, everybody's preferences are different. Everybody responds to different products differently. You know, if, if I'm playing with maybe this brand of gel and that brand of this and this brand's, you know, energy drink mix, how can I tell when a product is working for me and when I need to move on and try a different product? Well, first and foremost, I always tell them to evaluate it by GI distress. If it's not giving them any GI distress, we know we can put it in our sport nutrition arsenal. The second thing I advise them to do is to look at an actual measure of work output. So in cycling, you've got a power meter that you can use if you want to take a look at 
it that way. The other thing you can do is have a criterion course with your bike that you can go out there and say, okay, how well do I usually do this? How fast do I usually go, you know, on this course? You can do the same thing for running. And that's what I always tell athletes is go out there and see if it's actually making a difference. I know it makes a difference for me, even if I can't feel it. I'll be using one of the high molecular weight carbohydrates and all of a sudden I'm just zipping down the road and I'm running that much faster predominantly because I chose one with a high oxidation rate during exercise and I'm doing something that specifically calls for it. So that's how I recommend people do it. You know, you've also got to be able to take it in regularly. And so if you've got to take it in regularly, you've got to be good with it. Okay. And if people taste something, they're just like, oh, this might work, but I just can't <laughs> stomach it then, you know, we're kind of, you know, we got we to gotta shelve that one. It's not going to be in our arsenal at that point. So when should an athlete, we, we've talked a lot about different products and, and the simple sugars and carbohydrate sources, um, but tell me this, when should an athlete consider the use of protein in conjunction with carbohydrate um, as it relates to training? Maybe, maybe you know, do we want to have some protein before training? Is it best after training? Is there any purpose for having it during training? Um, talk to me about protein. Yeah, so protein, you know, just based on the guidelines that we have in sport, you know, we say at least in the one hour before exercise, we hopefully have people consuming one to four grams of carbohydrate. And with it, we recommend to optimize pre-training fuel for them to have a small amount of protein. We're not very specific about it because it does sometimes take a good bit more to digest but we recommend that you put it into the snack or meal that you're having in that window prior to training to help fulfill some of your protein needs. And, you know, optimally, we're typically trying to get people to have 20 to 25 grams of protein every three hours throughout the day for the hours that they're awake. And so if we miss one of those windows, typically they start to get behind. So we always like to see them have it at least somewhat before they exercise. During ex exercise is really debatable, but commonly what I'll see athletes incorporate in are some branch chain amino acids, especially during prolonged work, in which they want to actually see if it helps them from a, a more cognitive perspective. Like, does it help me focus when I'm out on these really long bikes or runs because I'm the person out there with ADD, right, and can't, you know, stay focused and I just don't want to stop. So we'll see athletes use it for that as well. And then after, typically we say, hey, you know, do I need this because it's been three hours and I'm, you know, going to have a little bit of a delay maybe before I get my food to help me start muscle repair. And they'll go and have, you know, 20 to 25 grams of protein from a single or multiple sources to help them start to repair the body. So what are the differences, you know, in the different protein options that are available to us as athletes? You know, we hear about... Uh, you know, there's whey, there's casein, there's plant-based, soy. Uh, what, what kind of are the differences between those different types of proteins? So the overall goal is to have a complete protein source that contains all the essential amino acids. You can receive this through plant-based protein powders because today they're creating them much like the same composition that you see uh, for whey protein. And I think even in some senses they're trying to manufacture ones that have everything with casing. In the case of a soy protein, on the other hand, um, it doesn't have all of our essential amino acids, but that doesn't mean that it can't be combined with other protein sources to provide a complete source. So sometimes it's about integrating products rather than just looking at a single one and saying, am I getting everything that I need? So it can be a little bit more of a challenge for those that want to stay purely plant-based, but we can do it just by integrating the different products. So a question I frequently get from athletes is, what protein source should I use? Um, how would you answer this? Well, choosing a protein source is very dependent on what you want it to do. You know, typically we say how fast or, you know, how slow can it be for you? So something like casein is very, very slow. It's the slowest of the proteins that we could consume, whereas something like eggs is more moderate and whey is far more, uh, far faster. Um, so the question is, do you need to try and repair that muscle as quickly as possible, or can you 
allow for a slower response and typically that's dependent on the other fueling the athlete's going to do throughout the day their fueling strategies and then also how soon they'll be training again you know what foods do they like with regards to protein consumption and what I find even for myself is that you know I'll have something right after a prolonged session that has whey protein in it and it might have like 20 grams but then I'll follow it up with something that has casein protein from something like yogurt um, so a variety of different ways you can you can combine those just depending on your own timeline and when you got to perform again so my my keto and fat adapted crowd would just absolutely get on to me if I didn't ask about fat. Uh, is, is fat an important part of a recovery product as well? The goal of fat is first and foremost to help be there to support your caloric needs regardless of what nutritional plan you're on. However, if you are on a high fat diet, you are a keto athlete, you'll definitely need it to help you maintain a state of ketosis, especially because during exercise, it's not uncommon that those athletes will consume carbohydrates, even if it's what we call kind of a keto-friendly carbohydrate. And so typically their recovery process will include a significant emphasis on fat. Um, so it's all about meeting your caloric needs, and if you are that keto athlete or the high-fat diet, you, you know, you're going to have a good bit more as part of your actual recovery process, like a keto bowl or keto smoothie. So how do products uh, focused on electrolytes fit into the equation? I know a lot of gels, um, you know, a lot of salt tabs, a lot of um, energy drink mixes, you know, advertise, oh, we, you know, we have this uh, electrolyte profile built in. We have, you know, this much salt, this much sodium. Uh, is, is that something that we should be considering when we're looking at our products? Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, at the end of the day, you can always add sodium into the, into your products. I mean, I've definitely done that over time, but the reason we want to take a look at the sodium is because our body needs sodium to help it get through every single component of what it's trying to do during exercise. So sodium is responsible for helping to transport the carbohydrates through the gastrointestinal system through these uh, transporters that are utilized. It's there to help with muscle function. It's there to optimize um, blood flow and making sure that we don't ever become hyponatremic. And so at the end of the day, I always encourage athletes to really take into account how much sodium is this going to give me. Now, overall, it also needs to fit into, you know, your sodium intake for the day that you're going to receive through food. Some athletes take in that much more sodium through food, so they don't have to be as cognizant in the recovery process with regards to how much sodium is there. And so they say to me, well, Krista, if I like chips and guacamole and salsa for recovery, do I need to sit there and drink, you know, a whole bunch of electrolyte beverage while I do it? And my answer is no, you can actually drink water because you've got these salted chips sitting there. Um, you just want to make sure though that you're getting enough. And that's where that nutrient analysis really comes in handy because you can say, am I meeting my needs for daily living and am I getting at least 500 milligrams uh, per liter over time with what I'm consuming and I say over time because if you're doing it sufficiently through foods and other processes you don't necessarily have to have that much in your electrolyte beverage itself so athletes will get there by a different means typically with the emphasis here on electrolytes particularly sodium um, would you recommend that athletes do a sweat test if they feel like they need it then yes absolutely i mean i think the more serious they get the more likely they are to go and do it. But we also have to realize that in a sweat test, you need to be in a steady state nutritionally, predominantly because your body is going to turn over more sodium in sweat if we actually alter the amount that we have in the diet. But the typical ranges we see in sweat is anywhere from 86 to 343 milligrams. That's what's reported in the research literature. So at the end of the day, we want to make sure that for every liter of fluid an athlete consumes during or even post-exercise, they're getting at least 500 milligrams per liter, okay? But that can also come in food or electrolyte beverages. So you mentioned just how critical sodium is to performance and how quickly it can become depleted. 
specifically in hot conditions, are, are there specific products that you recommend athletes use to account for this? You know, so, I mean, typically, I always turn around and say, what is it going to take to rehydrate you and get you to give your body what it is you need, okay? For some people, they can do that very easily through homemade sports drinks, the food they eat throughout the day. But with others, we'll turn around and use hydration products that are highly focused on just providing them with electrolytes. And the whole purpose behind them is to help uh, replenish the body. The other thing we'll start to tap into typically in racing is electrolyte capsules. Or we'll start tapping into products like base salt, which can be used just on the tip of the tongue. And it's really good for psychological reward. Um, But at the end of the day, I think some of the favorite things that people really do love is just salty foods. So if you're in the recovery process, I like to see how much can be relied on from salty foods. But when you're racing and trying to optimize recovery, we typically do incorporate the hydration products and the electrolyte capsules. Now, I've got to ask here, um, what about pickle juice? This was something that was a new thing to me when I moved to Texas. But participating in the Hotter Than Hell 100, I mean, cyclists left and right were just swearing by pickle juice. What do you think about that? Yep. Absolutely. I mean, pickle juice has a lot of sodium in it, and so it's very concentrated and can give you just like a good shot and dose of sodium when you really need it. Same thing for bone broth, okay? And I never thought I would hear athletes saying this, but they said, Krista, in the middle of a race, some cold bone broth because it's been sitting in my bag for so long, you know, they'll go to their special needs or what have you, taste phenomenal. And so it's another avenue that athletes can use to help get that sodium in. And I think you can relate to this. I mean, when you're out there for so long, you need that stimulus from a variety of different products to help you get through the race. So it might be pickle juice or bone broth that makes or breaks your day when it comes down to just cognitive function and and keeping your sodium in you. Yes, something that just hits the spot. (laughs) I've seen some snow cone stands here in Texas that serve pickle juice flavored snow cones. I don't know, Elizabeth, the next next Ironman race we go to to support our trot out athletes, maybe we should set up a pickle juice uh, snow cone stand. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) See if it helps get them through the race. No, I've definitely had those athletes that have asked for things like that. (laughs) Uh, I believe it. Yep. Uh, A lot of, lot of folks out there with uh, different, different needs. Um, so th- there's so many hydration products to choose from, and, and you touched on some of them with with base salt and capsules, and um, d- different brands have tablets you can drop into your drink. Um, how should athletes know, you know, which one they should choose uh, for training and racing? Yeah, I typically suggest to people, unless they've got, you know a reason where they don't want the sodium too high, I say try to find one that has about 120 milligrams per 8 ounces. Um, Typically, most athletes will actually rotate their products because they do tend to get what we call palate or flavor fatigued. Um, So when they're looking at them, just try to make sure it's got about 120 milligrams per 8 ounces unless you've, you've been directed otherwise by a professional. Um, and choose oftentimes your particular brands that work best for you. You know, the question is how well usually can you manipulate the dose of electrolytes that the product is providing to you? So they'll come in powders or tablets and people will say, well, you know, can I just like break the tablet in half and like have half of it? And I'm like, absolutely. There's no rule out there that says you have to take the whole tablet all at once. So break it in half or just take half a stick of the powder and manipulate what you've bought, you know, in the manner that you desire to. And don't forget, we also have some homemade versions out there on the web that you can use, including ones that are sugar-free. So know that you can make ones at home if you say, hey, Krista, you know, this kind of gets a little expensive because I sweat a lot. Um, is there a cheaper way to do this? There are homemade versions that we can always include into our, our arsenal. All right, y'all. So just just to land the plane today, we've talked a lot about um, just just the science behind what we actually need to be putting into our bodies. We've talked about the different types of products that are out there that are available to us as athletes to try. But but just to give the people uh, just some concrete ideas, if if someone athlete out there has been listening to this conversation, 
you know, they, they, they've, they've heard the information we've given. They maybe want to go on, on Amazon or go on, you know, down to the store and kind of look at some different products and, and consider what they want to try next for themselves. Uh, maybe if we all just kind of give maybe one suggestion of, hey, I, I've been using this lately and really liking it. Uh, just kind of some, a concrete example, uh, almost a personal endorsement, if you will, of something you're really enjoying uh, in your own training right now. Um, so Elizabeth, I'll start with you. Uh, and longtime listeners of the podcast are going to know what you're about to say. <laughs> yes. They're like, all right, we know Elizabeth's going to talk about UCAN. Um, but yes, I, I will. UCAN has been a wonderful product for me in my training. Um, and kind of as we've mentioned a couple things throughout today's information, um, I just kind of want to go back and say that, yes, like it does come in that super starch powdered format, uh, but I also use it um, in a very concentrated way and make my homemade gels with it. Um, additionally, when, you know, I'm in some very warm conditions, um, especially living right outside of Dallas, I will kind of make a homemade version of the super starch with some additional electrolytes, um, some additional sodium in there as well, and kind of make that, uh, homemade blend of a nutritional product. Uh, Dr. Austin, what is a, uh, product that you would recommend our athletes give a try? You know, I've been playing with all these high molecular weight carbohydrates here recently, and the one I actually tried the other day um, in preparation for Olympic trials for the marathon, I wanted to see if I could actually pull this off, was a dose of Vitargo like every 5K. And I will tell you, I was pretty impressed by that product. I could not feel it whatsoever. Um, but kind of like Elizabeth, I've used the UCAN over the years. I use that usually before and after because of my goals. Um, but I've had a lot of fun with the high molecular weight ones. Um, so I'm trying to play with all of them at the moment. They seem to work well. Would you say that Targa would work for Ironman athletes or is that specifically for, okay, you're going hard for a marathon. You're going to take it every 5k. Does it need to be more regularly taken? You know, it, it would, it would work really well in a triathlon as well. Um, I was trying it out because I have athletes right now who have been playing with it for Olympic trials. And the big question to me was they said, Krista can, you know, this stuff, I can't feel it. Right. And I'm doing pretty well on it. Should I try taking a full serving every 5k? And so, you know, what does Dr. Austin do? Well, she kind of guinea pigs herself, right? She says, <laughs> I can't run as fast as they can, but I can put out a good effort if I rest for a few days. And so I was like, you know, what does it feel like? Um, to do that. And then I'm testing it out. What does it feel like, you know, to take a dose probably every 16 minutes or so? Um, and does it cause any issues? So I've been playing with the concentrations a little bit for those that are using it. So now I'm going to give a shout out to two different nutritional products that I've been using and loving lately. The first one I want to talk about is a company called Picky Bars. Pro triathlete Jesse Thomas and his wife Lauren founded Picky Bars and produced their products in Bend, Oregon. Their bars are super tasty. Um, I find them light but filling. Um, and I, I pair them frequently with some carrots or some fruit as kind of an in-between workout snack. Uh, but the picky bar product I absolutely love is their picky oats. Their How About Them Apples performance oatmeal has become my go-to breakfast for just heavy training days, um, race morning. And the, the best thing is using their picky club system, I get a fresh batch of oatmeal delivered right to my door every two months. So guys, if you can deliver a hearty, tasty, nutritional breakfast right to my door, you, you've won my heart forever. And that's exactly what Picky Bars does. The second thing I want to plug is Science and Sports Energy Gels. I've taken a lot of different gels over the years, but once I tried Science and Sport, I, I, I won't go back to anything else. Like most companies, they have a wide variety of flavors. Um, so you're going to find something that you like. Uh, but what really sets them apart is the consistency of the gel itself. Instead of being a thick paste that you have to have alongside um, kind of some water or another fluid, um, science and sports gels are more like a fluid that you drink from the packaging. Uh, so they're, they're easier to take. They don't require water. And when I pop one of those bad boys, you know, out on a run or, or during a race, I feel the effects just immediately. I also really like that several of the flavors have electrolytes or caffeine in the gel itself. Um, those 5 a.m. swim days go a whole lot better 
when I take my espresso flavored double caffeinated science and sport gel right before the main set. So um, thank you both so much for, for kind of giving some concrete examples of the things you're using. Uh, those are some of the things I'm using right now. Um, so just a shout out to Generation UCAN, uh, Vitarga, Picky Bars, and Science and Sport. Uh, go give those companies a look and see if maybe um, some of their products might be a good fit for you. Great set, everyone. Let's cool down. We're going to cool down today with something we call Triathlon Mythbusters. This is our segment where I pose a commonly believed principle from the multi-sport world and ask our experts to either confirm it as a fact or bust it as a myth. Dr. Austin, for a little extra nutritional info today, I have a nutrition-based Mythbuster question. Are you up to the task? I'm up for it. All right. A principle widely accepted in the fitness and general dieting world is the cheat meal, where after a week or so of eating really, really healthy, we allow ourselves one meal to splurge on maybe a certain entree or a dessert or just something that we've been craving. Some see it as a reward for all the good work and the diligent eating, while others suggest that caving on just one meal helps you keep the diet clean the rest of the week. Krista, is this a, a fact or is it a myth that a cheat meal could be a beneficial uh, part of a nutrition plan? I believe that having a fun meal, and that's what I usually call it, is essential to helping us stick to the plan for the rest of the week. And I think we all kind of need to have that something that we just go out and enjoy. But, you know, if you're somebody that says, hey, you know, one one fun meal and that's it, I'm off the rails, then we, we got to know how to rein that in. And we always have to be smart about our fun meal and make sure that we're not going too crazy and undoing all the great work we did in the week. Elizabeth, what do you think about the uh, perspective of calling it a fun meal and not a cheat meal? I, I like that a lot. I, I haven't heard that term, but um, I think it gives a much more positive connotation than, you know, cheating on the diet and the cheat meal. I do too. I, I think on our social media account, we need to have a uh, fun meal post of the week. Ah, uh, <laughs> there we go. Yes. <laughs> uh, but hey, guys, you heard our, our expert, Dr. Austin, do not go overboard with the fun meal. Because uh, I, I would argue that's that would be the point that it makes it a cheat meal. Okay. Uh, so, so keep it a fun meal and not a cheat meal. Well, that's it for today, folks. A big thanks to Dr. Krista Austin for talking with Elizabeth and I about what to look for when we are choosing nutrition products to fuel our training and racing. Shout out to UCAN for partnering with us on today's episode. Head to generationucan.com to see what super starch products can power your training. Enjoying the podcast? Have any questions or topics you want to hear us talk about? Head to tridot.com slash podcast and click on submit feedback to let us know what you're thinking. We'll do it again soon. Until then, happy training. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe and share the TriDot podcast with your triathlon crew. For more great Tri content and community, connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Ready to optimize your training? Head to TriDot.com and start your free trial today. TriDot, the obvious and automatic choice for triathlon training.